Thank you for having me here today. Uh, it's been a rough week for Dean. He sent me a text this morning and said it would just been impossible for him to have preached with everything that's going on. So we really need to remember uh, Dean and Sherry and Dean and Kelly and Glenn and Sherry in our prayers. But I'm uh, I'm pleased we're here. And thanks so much for the for the worship team. Okay, it's just great, you know. And God's grace is truly, truly amazing it is and it just comes on us like a flood sometimes when we just don't even you know we're not even aware it's raining sometimes right and God's grace is the same way it just comes upon us when we least expect it and so today we're going to talk a little bit about God's grace from John uh, chapter um, 5 it's a story from the life of Jesus that kind of teaches us about grace in a very tangible way but before we start, I want a little bit about me, okay? And most of y'all know me, but maybe there's some things you might not know, okay? The most important thing about me is that I'm married to Anne. <laughs> no, it's true. I am. Anne and I have been married 47 years and 10 months, all right? In two months, almost to the day, we'll have our 48th anniversary. We met on a blind date at Texas A&M. We were both students at Texas A&M. We met on a blind date, went to a basketball game. Um, we dated for six weeks. And then I said, let's just, why don't, do you want to get married? And I don't know why she said yes, but in six weeks, I knew this was the girl for me, right? Honestly, it's the most important thing in my life. And we have four kids, two boys and two girls. Okay, two sons, son, son, daughter, daughter. Ten grandkids, and all the grandkids live out, you know, Fort Worth, Denver, St. Louis, four of them in Portugal right now, a long way away, okay? I was raised in Dallas, um, and my father was a guy, that, he was kind of like Dan Beeman, okay? He, he worked around the house, that's what he did. And uh, we kind of had an old home the, from when I was seven to 14, and every Saturday he had a project, and I was the helper, okay? So my friends would be out playing on the street. I would be helping my father. Uh, it's pretty cool. Not so cool back then. You know, by, by age seven, my father required that I learn the name of every tool in his toolbox. When he said, I want a Phillips screwdriver, you know, I was going to be in trouble if I handed him a flathead screwdriver, you know. If I need a boxed-in wrench, I had to hand him a boxed-in, not an open-in wrench. I had to learn every tool in the toolbox. And, you know, at the time I didn't like it, but I'm glad that he did. And so what's happened is I've kind of become the same way. I just do things around the house, you know. You know, and there's some husbands that just call the plumber, they call the carpenter, they call the electrician. I take it on. And uh, my sons, my two sons are the same way, that they just do things. Around, and they do more than I did. It, sometimes it amazes me. My second son learned how to braise copper. He went to Home Depot and had somebody teach him. And then he went back home and remodeled, put all the new plumbing in his bathroom. I would have never done that. But it dawned on me not too long ago that, you know, this has kind of been a like father, like son 
type deal for our family for three, actually for four generations. My father's father was the, was the same way. And so kind of like I do things like my father did and my sons do things like their father did, we're going to see that Jesus does things like his father did in this passage from John chapter 5, okay? So John 5, don't, you don't have to look right now if you don't want, because we're going to look at a little bit of foundational Christology. It's a Bible church, right? We're going to have a little bit of theology, and then we're going to look at the story, and then we're going to have some application, okay? So, uh, Colleen, can we put up John chapter 1? Can we see this okay? Okay, good. This is... This is foundational to John's thinking as he wrote the book of John, okay? And he starts with, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the Word is Jesus, the Word. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. There was no other son before Jesus. There's been no son after Jesus. He was there. He was watching God as creation. In fact, he was involved in creation, right? There's no, he knows about the Father, right? And then a little bit further, John says, and this word, Jesus, he became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we saw with our own eyes, we saw his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father. The only son. There's not two Jesuses that compete with each other. It's not an older brother and a younger brother, right? There's only Jesus. And this glory, he was full, full, completely full of grace and truth. And from this grace we received, he lived here, we witnessed it, and we received from this full picture of grace that never became in the least bit empty as he poured it out upon us. Grace upon grace. Is there anybody here from Louisiana? Grace upon grace is like lanyap, right? You get something, and then you get something else for free. This is a cool dinner. Thank you for making it. Yeah, but I'm going to give you dessert. Okay, grace upon grace. You know, he's full of grace. And Well, let's look at this. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we've got two potentially competing systems, right? You've got the law that came through Moses and grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to, we, later on in chapter 5, Jesus says, hey, there's no contradiction between me and Moses. In fact, he says that, tells the, the leaders, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote about me, Moses did. And if you don't believe his writings, how in the world are you going to believe what I'm trying to say? Your problem's belief, okay? 
Now, grace and truth, it's interesting. I think this truth, we talk about that a lot at Creekside, right? That Jesus gives us the correct interpretation of the law, right? There's no conflict. And sometimes, I think back then, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, took the law and they misinterpreted it and misapplied it, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, grace and truth, they go together. And he says, no one has seen God, but the only begotten God, Jesus Christ, who's at the Father, he has made him known. So what we see here is from the beginning, Jesus was with God, and he came down so that we could see him. We could see Jesus, and by watching Jesus, we know about the Father. You've never seen him, but I've seen him. I was with him since day one, and I'm here doing things exactly, exactly like the Father that would do them. And so you can know about the Father by looking at me, like Father, like Son. This is foundational to what John, to John's whole book, okay? That's, okay, that's the opening, all right? So now let's look at the story. John 5, um, verse 1 through, we're going to go through 19. Um, I'm just going to kind of read it and make some comments as we go along, okay? Now Jesus has been, before we start, he's been in Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, right? This, this John 1 starts, after this was a feast of the Jews. After he had been in Galilee, let me read you what he was doing in Galilee. I, uh, Matthew 4, he says, um, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, even further north, out where the Gentiles are, right? And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were deemed possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. All right? And then he goes into the uh, Sermon on the Mount and begins teaching his disciples. So he's in Galilee. He's preaching the kingdom. He's healing all kinds of diseases. And he's teaching his followers what it means to be a kingdom people, okay? Like father, like son, like disciple, okay? Teaching them about the father. So after this, he comes to a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure which feast this is, okay? But the one thing that we can be sure of is there are a lot of people there, and it's crowded, and there's going to be no lack of Jewish leaders at this feast. So he steps into this context. In Jerusalem, people 
all over the place, right? And verse 2, now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there's a pool in Aramaic, which is called in Aramaic Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now this pool's on the north side of the Jerusalem wall, we think, the gate. That's where the sheep gate, north and towards the east, okay? And right inside of that was a pool, okay? And the pool, actually there were two pools. And there was one and there was another here, and around it was on four sides where these, oh, it's a colonnade. If you've ever been to Greece or you've seen pictures of it, you know, column, 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 kind of like the Greeks did. And then down the middle was a porch or another wall, and it had columns in between it. So there were five colonnades, and it had a roof over it. And what was happening is there were people that were sick and invalid and paralyzed that were sitting on these around this these pools now probably what happened is these pools were connected to another water source and these two pools were connected to each other and from time to time the water would come in and it would cause this the pools to increase their volume and if there was air down there or whatever they might act like it was bubbling or something like that that's just me I'm a civil engineer okay that's what I studied. What I was studying when I met Ann, then my grades were shoot. No, actually, they got better when I met Ann. They got better. They got a lot better when I met Ann. She made me study, okay? But that's probably what was happening. Now, some of you in your Bibles may have this phrase that says, um, where am I? Okay? Who were wait before I get this, there was a crowd of invalids, that's what it says. There was a multitude of invalids. This, all around this, this pool, on, maybe on all four sides and down the middle were people that were sick, that were desperate, that needed healing, that didn't know what else to do, okay? Now, it says in, in some of our Bibles, these these sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed who were waiting for the moving of waters. For an angel went down at certain times into the pool, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the waters was made well of whatever disease he or she had. Now, these words are not in the oldest manuscripts that we have. And most likely they were put in there to explain, somebody thought, we need to explain why all these people are here, okay? Now, in Albania, there's, um, has anybody here ever been on a pilgrimage before where you take a long walk and you go up to a holy site because something special happens at that holy site? Ann and I have. Okay, in Albania, up in, in the country, a little city in the north, is Lodge, and there was a, a person that lived up there that did a, uh, his name was Inouye, he had a, did a miracle, and he has a, a little cathedral up there. And so, starting last Tuesday, March the 13th, the, se the second Tuesday of every March, people take a 
pilgrimage up this mountain. They walk a couple hours up this mountain. So March, there was about 20,000 people walking up this mountain. And they're going to do it every Tuesday in, for 13 Tuesdays. And in June, on the 13th Tuesday, there's going to be over 100,000 people that are going to take this pilgrimage up this mountain. And when they get up there, they think it's a special place of healing. There is a statue of this saint. Ann and I have witnessed this. They take their children. They put their children up on the statue. They take pictures of somebody that's invalid or lame that couldn't walk, and they rub the pictures on the statue as if that's going to heal them, right? And I was talking to a, a group of people once about this, and like, you know, this is kind of pagan religion. She says, no, sir, it works. I know it works. I have testimony of people that have made the pilgrimage to Shinanoi, and they were healed. And so it begins to, people begin to believe this, right? And God may choose somehow to heal people, but it's not because you made a trek up to Shinanoi and rubbed your photograph onto a statue. That's a, that's a folk religion way to get God's blessing, all right? And I think what was happening here is there was some folk religion. People were thinking that they were healed if they could only get in the water when the angels stirred it up. But the emphasis here is there are a lot of invalids, right? And they're desperate. And Jesus comes into the scene. And there was a man lying there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, hey, do you want to be healed? And the guy says, sir, I don't have anyone to put me into the, the waters when it's stirred up. And while I'm trying to get down in the water, somebody else goes in front of me. So, you know, he's saying, hey, my situation is pretty hopeless. I've been this way 38 years, right? I would love to be able to walk, but I have no one to help me. And this angel, we don't know when this angel's going to stir up the water, right? And I can't get down there. We don't know why this man was an invalid. It could have been that he, because of, he was born that way. It could have been because of a sickness or an accident. It could have been that he sinned in some way. And because a result of his sin, he ended up paralyzed or, or without use of his legs. We don't know. We just know he was in a pretty hopeless situation. And we also don't know why Jesus picked this man out to talk to. Okay, that it doesn't give us any idea. It just says there was a man and Jesus went to him and said, hey, do you want to be healed? Uh, we're going to see in a minute that Jesus heals this guy. It's fully possible that Jesus healed a lot of other people at the same time. But the story is about this guy. 
And it's interesting that this interaction, Jesus goes to him. It was initiated by Jesus. There was nothing the man did. There was nothing the man said that we see here. There was nothing worthy about him. In fact, he may have been grouchy. We don't know, right? Uh, but Jesus approached him. And it's a human, I think the emphasis, it's, a, it's an interaction between Jesus and this person, okay? You and I now are having a conversation. It's not just he healed the multitudes, but he's talking about this specific man. And the man may have been saying, you know, geez, can you help me get in the water? You know, do you want to be healed? I have no one to help me into the water, sir. And his implication means, can you help me into the water? Can you hang around till the waters are stirred up and help me into the water? He may have been using Jesus as a means to an end, right? This guy, Jesus, you know, he's graciously offering to help me, but I'm going to use him as a way to manipulate him to get to an end that I want, to get to a man-made solution, so Jesus says to him, hey, dude, he, he probably didn't say dude, bro, no, pick up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he picked up his bed and walked. This is immediate and it's extraordinary 38 years he hasn't walked. He didn't have to go to the rehabilitation hospital after he was healed to learn how to walk, all right? He just got up and started walking, even though his legs had not been used for 38 years. This was a significant, extraordinary miracle. So, John goes on. The next day was the Sabbath, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, take up is he reached down, he got his mat, he rolled it up, and he carried it out. And if you were going to carry this, Dan, how would you do it? He'd probably put it on your shoulder, right? And I'm carrying this thing out. Now, the Jews had... 39 categories of actions that were illegal or not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And one of them was to carry something from one house to another house. You could, you know, maybe you could move your couch a little bit, all right? But if you picked up your rug and put it on your shoulder to take it over to your mom's house, you could not do that because you were carrying a burden. And that's what this idea of take up, take up means to take it up and to carry it somewhere. They said, hey, sir, this is not lawful for you on the Sabbath. The guy says, well, that guy who healed me, I don't even know what his name is. He just showed up, you know, asked me if I wanted to get healed. He told me to get up and pick up the mat and I did it, right? And he told me to carry it. 
Jesus just didn't say, hey, go. He said, pick up your mat and go. It said, you know, John says, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in this place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well now. Okay, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So this may be an implication that his, his problem was a result of sin, or it could be Jesus just saying, hey, don't, don't take lightly the goodness of God. Because the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It's Romans 2, chapter, Romans 2, verse 4. Don't take lightly, you know, the goodness and the patience of God, knowing that his goodness to you leads you to repentance. And Jesus possibly was saying, you need to believe. You need to understand that the goodness of God was just poured out upon you, graciously poured out upon you, right? So believe, repent of your unbelief because there's something at the end of your life, you, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins and something worse will happen to you. It could be what he's saying. Or he could be saying, stop doing whatever you did to get in this situation. But I, I like the don't take lightly the goodness of God. So we have seen God's grace. All right. The man did nothing other than just acknowledged his need. Right? He did not even know who Jesus was. He didn't know, right? And he, he didn't even say thank you. In fact, he kind of threw him under the bus later on when the Pharisees asked, you know, who was this guy? Oh, it's Jesus. There it is. I found out his name. That's who it is. Don't bust on me. Go get after him. I, he may not have said it like that, right? He just may have said, hey, you ask. He's cool. You know, his name's Jesus. Look at him. He's over there. He's a cool guy. It may have been the way that it was. But it was pure grace shown to this guy. All right? Now, we... Um, so, Jesus comes. He sees this guy who's in a helpless situation. He says, do you want to be healed? And the man acknowledges his his helpless condition and Jesus heals him. You know, that's a lot like what happens for us when we trust in Jesus for eternal life. We come to a point where we understand there is nothing that I can do to merit a relationship with God. I am helpless when it comes to saving my soul, right? And God says, hey, I came in the person of my son, Jesus Christ, and I made a way for you to be healed. 
All you have to do is believe. And if you believe, you will be healed from your sin, from the penalty of your sin. And on this, this, the thing for us to do is to pick up our bed, right? To believe. And I assume that everyone here has trusted in Christ before today. But if you haven't, that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, my grace is here for you. Pick it up. Accept it. Believe in me. All right? But the story goes on. And actually, this is the part I really like. This happened on the Sabbath, right? And this is why the Jews were persecuting him because he was doing all these things on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus answered them and said, hey, my father is working till now, meaning up to this moment right now, my father has been working, he is working, right? And I am working. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Now, the Jews had, they allowed God to work 24-7, right? They, they had a category of work. They had a, a they, they shaped God in such a way that it was not wrong for him to work 24-7, okay? So they believed when Jesus said, hey, my father's working unto now, they had no problem with that, okay? God fills the universe. He never leaves his house. He never has to pick up a load and put it on his shoulder, okay? So whatever he's doing, he's not doing those things. So whatever work he does is allowable on the Sabbath. That was not a problem for the Jews. And Jesus says, and I'm working till now. You see what he's done? Jesus has put him and God in the same category because God can work on the Sabbath without violating the law, and Jesus can work on the Sabbath without violating the law. What does that mean? We are both God. Right? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Right? He's just put himself in the category that only God lives in. He turned their logic around on him. And it's important for us, getting back to theology, not to, to, for us to understand that the Jews did not misunderstand what Jesus was saying about his identity. It is super clear here. Jesus claimed to be God. And the Jews knew it, and they got mad at him because he made himself equal with God. And so if you have some cult or religion today that says, no, Jesus never said he was God. There, make no mistake about it. There's the Jews in that context understood exactly what he was saying. And what did they understand? He was making himself equal with God. So we may say Jesus wasn't, but Jesus self-identified 
as being equal with God. All right, so that's the story. This man by the pool, an invalid, helpless. Jesus shows up. He sees him without the guy doing anything. Jesus shows him grace, right? The man is completely healed, and Jesus gets in a conflict with the Pharisees because he healed on the Sabbath, and he called God his father. He put himself in God's category. But I want to connect the next verse with verse 17. I want to connect 17 and 19. It says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the son does, the, whatever, excuse me, whatever the father does, the son does likewise, right? God's working and I'm working. And the work that I do, I only do the work that the father does. Whatever I see him doing, I do likewise, completely. We're in 100% agreement with each other in the way that we do things. Make sense? All right. Like, father, like, son, 100%. So what does that mean about us when we look at Jesus? When we look at what Jesus is doing, that's what God is doing because Jesus only does what the Father does, right? So it's not the other way around for us. We see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, we understand what the Father does. My Father is working. What is God doing? What's he doing today? Is God working today? Yes. What was he doing the moment before Jesus said, my father is working? What kind of work does God do? What kind of work was Jesus doing? He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, preaching about the kingdom of God. He was healing people, and he was training people how to be kingdom people. He was caring for his creation. His creation was suffering because of sin. It was suffering because they had taken the law and misinterpreted it and said, you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. They were stealing money. They were not taking care of widows and orphans, right? And Jesus comes and says, no, that's not the way the kingdom is oriented. So he was teaching them how to live right? And in the meantime, he was healing people. And then he was training those that were going to come after him of how to live in the kingdom. He was caring for his creation. So that teaches us that God is caring for his creation also. Um, he, Hebrews 1.3 talks about Jesus 
okay? It says, God who in time past talked to us through his uh, prophets and the fathers has in this last day spoken to us through Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the worlds, Jesus, through Jesus God created, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, like father, like son, all right, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made provision, cleanses from our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It says Jesus, or God through Jesus, is upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding. Upholding, right? The work, it's like putting that burden on your shoulder. God has, is carrying his creation day in and day out, caring for it. And so Jesus, you know, you want, you don't want me to heal on the Sabbath? You know, this work that you're condemning this man for, carrying his mat, God does that every day. He carries you, bro. He's taking care of you. Now, how does he do that? Um, I love Psalm, let me read you a Psalm. This is Psalm 145. It says, the Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is in the business of feeding his creation. Jesus says, um, why do you worry about money? Why are you worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on? Look at the birds of the field right? Your father feeds them, and aren't you of much more value than them, meaning he's going to feed you. God is in the business of taking care of his creation. Paul, in um, Acts 14, he's in Lystra, a, a bunch of Gentiles, and he's telling them they're trying to worship Paul and Barnabas, and God says, hey, God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in it, who in bygone generation has allowed all nations to walk in their ways. He's been patient. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, giving us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts with food and desires. Paul's saying, if you just stop and look, this creator is doing good to his creation. He's given us rain. He's given us sun. He's causing trees to grow. He's providing grass for the cows to eat. He's taking care of his creation. And we call that common grace, okay? That God, it's his goodness given to all creation freely 
forgiven goodness. So what's the application for us? How do we respond? Like father, God's taking care of his creation. Like son, Jesus is healing people around him. He's talking to them about the kingdom. He's training them up. We're Jesus followers, right? 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. All right? And he says it doesn't yet fully appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him fully as he is. Jesus lived with him, okay? He knew. He came down and he taught us about God. And we've become the children of God. And we're being transformed into people that represent God, like son, like father, like son, like disciple, right? So we learn from Jesus. So what do we do about common grace? Well, the first thing we do is we can give it to all people. All people, right? Regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of whether they're evil, good, we show grace. Jesus says... um, You've heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, okay, he probably pointed his finger. He probably didn't. Love your enemies, right? Bless those that curse you. Uh, Do good to those that hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Why? that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who makes his son rise, the the S-U-N, on the evil and the good, and the rain sends rain on the just and the unjust. God shows common grace to all people. God shows grace to all people. Primarily rain, sun, okay, food satisfies the desires of every living thing. And because that's who God is, love your enemy. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that spitefully use you, okay? Do good. Show grace. And we're out of time. (laughs) I think that we should see, we should understand, right, that God's in the business of taking care of this creation. He wants his people to have food. So how do we get milk? God created milk to bless people. Now, I eat milk on my cereal. Maybe some of y'all don't like milk. But milk comes from a cow. Somebody has to milk the cow, right? Somebody has to package the milk, 
We pasteurize it, but somebody's got to put it in a bottle, has to clean it up. We've got 7 million people in Houston area, all right? Somebody's got to ship it to a distribution point, all right? Somebody's got to take it out of the truck and has to put it on the shelf. Somebody has to be at the checkout register so that when I get it, I can pay for it and take it home. Now, if you think about it, all those people are being used by God to feed his creation. So who's the lowest person on that food chain, that supply chain? Is it the, back in old days, the milkmaid that was milking the cow? Okay. I may not like my job. I may get sick and tired of it. I may say, I don't, I just, I'm not, I'm not doing this, I'm tired of it. I don't want my name to be forever to be known by here lies Alan, he milked a cow all the days of his life. While George made tons of money through the milk producing operation. I just don't want to be known as the person that did that. I want to be known as somebody who went to Albania, all right, shared the gospel, and preached the kingdom. And God's saying, Alan, you're not working for that guy. You're working for me. And you're, taking mil you're making milk available to creation. You are my agent to do good, to show common grace. And I just have you stationed there at the milk farm, whatever you call it, dairy farm. Okay, it's the same way accountant. Does anybody here ever been an accountant? <laughs> Why do we need accountants? What, what good is an accountant in the kingdom of God? Well, accountants help keep companies honest. They're supposed to so that they can pay their taxes, so that the government can use the taxes to help do good for the community, to build roads so that the people bringing the trucks with the milk on them can get to the... No, seriously. Okay? All I do is I just build roads. I'm just a carpenter. I'm not even a carpenter. All they do all day, I just haul lumber from here to there so those carpenters can put it up so we can build a road. Well, we need roads. Because how the how's the milk going to get to the store that Albert made sure we had money to do? Right? So God can use us to be a blessing to society to show him common grace. So those are two ways that I would say we can apply this. My father's working to now. I am doing good, just like my father does good each and every moment of the day. And we get involved in doing, showing the world common grace by loving our enemies, praying for those that spitefully use us, blessing those that curse us, all right, doing good to those that 
do bad to us. We just bless people. And then we begin to see ourselves as purveyors of common grace. Okay? So, um, I love those verses. My father is working until now. I am working. Remember those. If you don't remember anything else, remember those. And you'll be able to piece the rest together. Okay? So let me pray for us. And uh, Lord God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you showed us grace. Thank you that you did not leave yourself without witness in my life, Lord. That you put someone there to help me come to you. Father, that wasn't my doing. That was yours, and I thank you for that. And Lord, I know together as a church we feel the same way. And we are grateful for all that you have done for us. Lord, help us to be gracious, to show grace to each and every person that we encounter. And help us with joyful hearts to have joyful hearts. Help us to have joyful hearts, Lord, as we do just the work each and every day, going here and there. Um, Lord, helping do help being used by you to do good. Give us joyful hearts. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into what you've got going on. And we offer these praises, these prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.